Chapter 31 of In His Steps. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. M. Hammond. In His Steps by Charles Monroe Sheldon. Chapter 31. He had planned, when he came to the city, to return to Raymond and be in his own pulpit on Sunday, but Friday morning he had received at the settlement a call from the pastor of one of the largest churches in Chicago, and had been invited to fill the pulpit for both morning and evening service. At first he hesitated, but finally accepted, seeing in it the hand of the Spirit's guiding power. He would test his own question. He would prove the truth or falsity of the charge made against the church at the settlement meeting. How far would it go in its self-denial for Jesus' sake? How closely would it walk in his steps? Was the church willing to suffer for its master? Saturday night he spent in prayer, nearly the whole night. There had never been so great a wrestling in his soul, not even during his strongest experiences in Raymond. He had, in fact, entered upon another new experience. The definition of his own discipleship was receiving an added test at this time, and he was being led into a larger truth of the Lord. Sunday morning the great church was filled to its utmost. Henry Maxwell, coming into the pulpit from that all-night vigil, felt the pressure of a great curiosity on the part of the people. They had heard of the Raymond movement, as all the churches had, and the recent action of Dr. Bruce had added to the general interest in the pledge. With this curiosity was something deeper, more serious. Mr. Maxwell felt that also, and in the knowledge that the Spirit's presence was his living strength, he brought his message and gave it to that church that day. He had never been what would be called a great preacher. He had not the force nor the quality that makes remarkable preachers, but ever since he had promised to do as Jesus would do, he had grown in a certain quality of persuasiveness that had all the essentials of true eloquence. This morning the people felt the complete sincerity and humility of a man who had gone deep into the heart of a great truth. After telling briefly of some results in his own church in Raymond since the pledge was taken, he went on to ask the question he had been asking since the settlement meeting. He had taken for his theme the story of the young man who came to Jesus asking what he must do to obtain eternal life. Jesus had tested him. Sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But the young man was not willing to suffer to that extent. If following Jesus meant suffering in that way, he was not willing. He would like to follow Jesus, but not if he had to give so much. Is it true, continued Henry Maxwell, and his fine thoughtful face glowed with a passion of appeal that stirred the people as they had seldom been stirred, is it true that the church of today, the church that is called after Christ's own name, would refuse to follow him at the expense of suffering, of physical loss, of temporary gain? The statement was made at a large gathering in the settlement last week by a, a leader of workingmen that it was hopeless to look to the church for any reform or redemption of society. On what was that statement based? plainly on the assumption that the church contains, for the most part, men and women who think more of their own ease and luxury than of the sufferings and needs and sins of humanity. How far is that true? Are the Christians of America ready to have their discipleship tested? How about the men who possess large wealth? Are they ready to take that wealth and use it as Jesus would? How about the men and women of great talent? Are they ready to consecrate that talent to humanity as Jesus undoubtedly would do? 
Is it not true that the call has come in this age for a new exhibition of Christian discipleship? You who live in this great sinful city must know that better than I do. Is it possible you can go your ways, careless or thoughtless, of the awful condition of men and women and children who are dying, body and soul, for need of Christian help? Is it not a matter of concern to you personally that the saloon kills its thousands more surely than war? Is it not a matter of personal suffering in some form for you that thousands of able-bodied, willing men tramp the streets of the city and all cities, crying for work and drifting into crime and suicide because they cannot find it? Can you say that this is none of your business? Let each man look after himself. Would it not be true, think you, that if every Christian in America did as Jesus would do, society itself, the business world, yes, the very political system under which our commercial and governmental activity is carried on, would be so changed that human suffering would be reduced to a minimum? What would be the result if all the church members of this city tried to do as Jesus would do? It is not possible to say in detail what the effect would be, but it is easy to say, and it is true, that instantly the human problem would begin to find an adequate answer. What is the test of Christian discipleship? Is it not the same as in Christ's own time? Have our surroundings modified or changed the test? If Jesus were here today, would he not call some of the members of this very church to do just what he commanded the young man and ask them to give up their wealth and literally follow him? I believe he would do that if he felt certain that any church member thought more of his possessions than of the Savior. The test would be the same today as then. I believe Jesus would demand, he does demand now, as close a following, as much suffering, as great self-denial as when he lived in person on the earth and said, Except a man renounce all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That is, unless he is willing to do it for my sake, he cannot be my disciple. What would be the result if in this city every church member should begin to do as Jesus would do? It is not easy to go into details of the result, but we all know that certain things would be impossible that are now practiced by church members. What would Jesus do in the matter of wealth? How would he spend it? What principle would regulate his use of money? Would he be likely to live in great luxury and spend ten times as much on personal adornment and entertainment as he spent to relieve the needs of suffering humanity? How would Jesus be governed in the making of money? Would he take rentals from saloons and other disreputable property, or even from tenement property that was so constructed that the inmates had no such things as a home and no such possibility as privacy or cleanliness? What would Jesus do about the great army of unemployed and desperate who tramp the streets and curse the church, or are indifferent to it, lost in the bitter struggle for the bread that tastes bitter when it is earned on account of the desperate conflict to get it? Would Jesus care nothing for them? Would he go his way in comparative ease and comfort? Would he say that it was none of his business? Would he excuse himself from all responsibility to remove the causes of such a condition? What would Jesus do in the center of a civilization that hurries so fast after money that the very girls employed in great business houses are not paid enough to keep soul and body together without fearful temptations so great that scores of them fall and are swept over the great boiling abyss, where the demands of trade sacrifice hundreds of lads in a business that ignores all Christian duties toward them in the way of education and moral training and personal affection? 
Would Jesus, if he were here today as a part of our age and commercial industry, feel nothing, do nothing, say nothing in the face of these facts which every businessman knows? What would Jesus do? Is not that what the disciple ought to do? Is he not commanded to follow in his steps? How much is the Christianity of the age suffering for him? Is it denying itself at the cost of ease, comfort, luxury, elegance of living? What does the age need more than personal sacrifice? Does the church do its duty in following Jesus when it gives a little money to establish missions or relieve extreme cases of want? Is it any sacrifice for a man who is worth $10 million simply to give $10,000 for some benevolent work? Is he not giving something that cost him practically nothing so far as any personal suffering goes? Is it true that the Christian disciples today in most of our churches are living soft, easy, selfish lives very far from any sacrifice that can be called sacrifice? What would Jesus do? It is the personal element that Christian discipleship needs to emphasize. The gift without the giver is bare. The Christianity that attempts to suffer by proxy is not the Christianity of Christ. Each individual Christian businessman, citizen, needs to follow in his steps along the path of personal sacrifice to him. There is not a different path today from that of Jesus' own times. It is the same path. The call of this dying century and of the new one soon to be is a call for a new discipleship, a new following of Jesus, more like the early simple apostolic Christianity when the disciples left all and literally followed the Master. Nothing but a discipleship of this kind can face the destructive selfishness of the age with any hope of overcoming it. There is a great quantity of nominal Christianity today. There is need of more of the real kind. We need revival of the Christianity of Christ. We have unconsciously, lazily, selfishly, formally grown into a discipleship that Jesus himself would not acknowledge. He would say to many of us when we cry, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Are we ready to take up the cross? Is it possible for this church to sing with exact truth, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. If we can sing that truly, then we may claim discipleship. But if our definition of being a Christian is simply to enjoy the privileges of worship, be generous at no expense to ourselves, have a good easy time surrounded by pleasant friends and by comfortable things, live respectably and at the same time avoid the world's great stress of sin and trouble because it is too much pain to bear it. If this is our definition of Christianity, surely we are a long way from following the steps of him who trod the way with groans and tears and sobs of anguish for a lost humanity, who sweat as it were great drops of blood, who cried out on the upreared cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Are we ready to make and live a new discipleship? Are we ready to reconsider our definition of a Christian? What is it to be a Christian? It is to imitate Jesus. It is to do as he would do. It is to walk in his steps. When Henry Maxwell finished his sermon, he paused and looked at the people with a look they never forgot and at the moment did not understand. Crowded into that fashionable church that day were hundreds of men and women who had for years lived the easy, satisfied life of a nominal Christianity. A great silence fell over the congregation. Through the silence there came to the consciousness of all the souls there present a knowledge, stranger to them now for years, of a divine power. 
Everyone expected the preacher to call for volunteers who would do as Jesus would do, but Maxwell had been led by the Spirit to deliver his message this time and wait for results to come. He closed the service with a tender prayer that kept the Divine Presence lingering very near every hearer, and the people slowly rose to go out. Then followed a scene that would have been impossible if any mere man had been alone in his striving for results. Men and women in great numbers crowded around the platform to see Mr. Maxwell and to bring him the promise of their consecration to the pledge to do as Jesus would do. It was a voluntary, spontaneous movement that broke upon his soul with a result he could not measure. But had he not been praying for this very thing? It was an answer that more than met his desires. There followed this movement of prayer service that in its impressions repeated the Raymond experience. In the evening, to Mr. Maxwell's joy, the Endeavor Society, almost to a member, came forward, as so many of the church members had done in the morning, and seriously, solemnly, tenderly took the pledge to do as Jesus would do. A deep wave of spiritual baptism broke over the meeting near its close that was indescribable in its tender, joyful, sympathetic results. That was a remarkable day in the history of that church, but even more so in the history of Henry Maxwell. He left the meeting very late. He went to his room at the settlement where he was still stopping, and after an hour with the bishop and Dr. Bruce, spent in a joyful rehearsal of the wonderful events of the day, he sat down to think over again by himself all the experience he was having as a Christian disciple. He had kneeled to pray as he always did before going to sleep, and it was while he was on his knees that he had a waking vision of what might be in the world when once the new discipleship had made its way into the conscience and conscientiousness of Christendom. He was fully conscious of being awake, but no less certainly did it seem to him that he saw certain results with great distinctiveness, partly as realities of the future, partly great longings that they might be realities. And this is what Henry Maxwell saw in this waking vision. He saw himself first going back to the first church in Raymond, living there in a simpler, more self-denying fashion than he had yet been willing to live, because he saw ways in which he could help others who were really dependent on him for help. He also saw more dimly that the time would come when his position as pastor of the church would cause him to suffer more on account of growing opposition to his interpretation of Jesus and his conduct. But this was vaguely outlined. Through it all he heard the words, My grace is sufficient for thee. He saw Rachel Winslow and Virginia Page going on with their work of service at the rectangle and reaching out loving hands of helpfulness far beyond the limits of Raymond. Rachel he saw married to Roland Page, both fully consecrated to the Master's use, both following his steps with an eagerness intensified and purified by their love for each other. And Rachel's voice sang on, in slums and dark places of despair and sin, and drew lost souls back to God in heaven once more. He saw President Marsh of the college using his great learning and his great influence to purify the city, to ennoble its patriotism, to inspire the young men and women who loved as well as admired him, to lives of Christian service, always teaching them that education means great responsibility for the weak and the ignorant. He saw Alexander Powers meeting with sore trials in his family life, with a constant sorrow in the estrangement of wife and friends, but still going his way in all honor, serving in all his strength the master whom he had obeyed, even unto the loss of social distinction and wealth. 
he saw milton wright the merchant meeting with great reverses thrown upon the future by a combination of circumstances with vast business interests involved in ruin through no fault of his own but coming out of his reverses with clean christian honor to begin again and work up to a position where he could again be to hundreds of young men an example of what jesus would do in business he saw edward norman editor of the news by means of the money given by virginia creating a force in journalism that in time came to be recognized as one of the real factors of the nation to mold its principles and actually shape its policy a daily illustration of the might of a christian press and the first of a series of such papers begun and carried on by other disciples who had also taken the pledge he saw Jasper Chase, who had denied his master, growing into a cold, cynical, formal life, writing novels that were social successes, but each one with a sting in it, the reminder of his denial, the bitter remorse that, do what he would, no social success could remove. He saw Rose Sterling, dependent for some years upon her aunt and Felicia, finally married to a man far older than herself, accepting the burden of a relation that had no love in it on her part, because of her desire to be the wife of a rich man and enjoy the physical luxuries that were all of life to her. Over this life also the vision cast certain dark and awful shadows, but they were not shown in detail. He saw Felicia and Stephen Clyde happily married, living a beautiful life together, enthusiastic, joyful in suffering, pouring out their great, strong, fragrant service into the dull, dark, terrible places of the great city, and redeeming souls through the personal touch of their home, dedicated to the human homesickness all about them. He saw Dr. Bruce and the bishop going on with the settlement work. He seemed to see the great blazing motto over the door enlarged, What would Jesus do? and by this motto everyone who entered the settlement walked in the steps of the master. He saw Burns and his companion, and a great company of men like them, redeemed and giving in turn to others, conquering their passions by the divine grace, and proving by their daily lives the reality of the new birth even in the lowest and most abandoned. And now the vision was troubled. It seemed to him that as he kneeled he began to pray, and the vision was more of a longing for a future than a reality in the future. The church of Jesus in the city and throughout the country, would it follow Jesus? Was the movement begun in Raymond to spend itself in a few churches like Nazareth Avenue and the one where he had preached today, and then die away as a local movement, a stirring on the surface but not to extend deep and far? He felt with agony after the vision again. He thought he saw the Church of Jesus in America open its heart to the moving of the Spirit and rise to the sacrifice of its ease and self-satisfaction in the name of Jesus. He thought he saw the motto, What Would Jesus Do?, inscribed over every church door and written on every church member's heart. The vision vanished. It came back clearer than before, and he saw the Endeavor societies all over the world carrying in their great processions at some mighty convention a banner on which was written, what would jesus do and he thought in the faces of the young men and women he saw future joy of suffering loss self-denial martyrdom and when this part of the vision slowly faded he saw the figure of the son of god beckoning to him and to all the other actors in his life history an angel choir somewhere was singing there was a sound as of many voices and a shout as of a great victory and the figure of jesus grew more and more splendid he stood at the end of a long flight of steps Yes, yes, oh, my master, has not the time come for this dawn of the millennium of Christian history? Oh, break upon the Christendom of this age with the light and the truth. Help us to follow thee all the way. 
he rose at last with the awe of one who has looked at heavenly things he felt the human forces and the human sins of the world as never before and with a hope that walks hand in hand with faith and love henry maxwell disciple of jesus laid him down to sleep and dreamed of the regeneration of christendom and saw in his dream a church of jesus without spot or wrinkle or any such thing following him all the way walking obediently in his steps end of chapter thirty one end of in his steps by charles monroe sheldon Thank you for listening, and if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day. Hola, somos Mark y Pearl Lambert, y somos los ministros de Jesús Responde las Oraciones. Si le gusta este ministerio, por favor ayúdenos a apoyarlo. El enlace para donar se encuentra en la descripción a continuación. Gracias y Dios te bendiga.